Hello, everyone, and welcome back. Thanks for listening to Insurance Uncovered. Now in Season 5 of NAMIC's podcast, we are featuring all new insurance news and perspective from thought leaders in the property casualty insurance industry. I'm your host, Kathy Imus, and today we're uncovering the road ahead for autonomous vehicles, how the property casualty insurance industry became a subject of focus during a recent congressional hearing, plus the great resignation, how the insurance workforce has changed dramatically in recent years, and what insurers can do to recruit and retain employees in a virtual world. But first, on February 2nd, NAMIC filed suit in Washington State Court seeking to overturn a misguided rule put in place by the insurance commissioner, despite an earlier iteration of the same rule having already hurt many consumers in the state. In its petition, NAMIC asked the court to invalidate the three-year rule banning the use of credit by insurers set to take effect March 4th. By enacting the rule, NAMIC argues Insurance Commissioner Mike Kreidler violated the constitutional separation of powers and has acted outside of his authority. The use of credit information has long been allowed by state law in Washington, helping to reduce cost for the vast majority of Washingtonians. Most insurance consumers, including vulnerable seniors, will continue to see significant premium rate increases due to the credit ban if this rule goes unchallenged. NAMIC will continue in its effort to protect insurers' ability to provide the best and most accurate products for their policyholders. Meanwhile, in the other Washington, federal lawmakers on the U.S. House Transportation Subcommittee on Highways and Transit hosted a hearing to discuss the future of automated vehicle deployment with a focus on insurance and data access. As NAMIC's Lauren Anderson reports, several members raised questions directly related to the involvement of the property casualty insurance industry. The Road Ahead for Automated Vehicles hearing covered a broad range of issues important to the insurance industry, like verifying safety, right to repair, and access to vehicle-generated data. Minnesota Representative Pete Stauber raised the issue of right to repair and noted manufacturers have sought to limit who can work on vehicles as they become more technologically advanced. Additionally, I also recognize that increased automation introduces new risk factors for folks that we do not understand or for uh, folks that we do not understand yet, such as sensor, camera, or software problems. Because of this uh, diagnosing damage to a vehicle, determining liability, and completion of police reports will increasingly rely on the data that the vehicle generates before, during, and after an accident. However, the president of the Advocates for Highway Safety, Kathy Chase, explained that the current requirements on AV developers are voluntary and are not sufficient enough to ensure that safety and data needs are met. Um, none of these are, are regulatory or required. They're all voluntary, meaning a company can decide to submit some, test, some information, choose what information they want to submit, or walk away at any point. And that's why these minimum performance requirements are so essential. Um, A framework or voluntary agreements is not going to do the trick. We need to know what's happening on our roads, and the way to accomplish safety is through regulation. NAMIC is heavily engaged in the conversation in Congress surrounding how AVs are regulated to ensure that the safety promises are being tested and proven, liability regulations remain at the state level, and insurance companies have access to vehicle-generated data. In fact, Massachusetts Representative Jake Auchincloss noted how important it is for the property casualty insurance industry to have a voice in ongoing conversations about AVs. 
the property and casualty insurance industry has a huge stake in making sure that we do this well. They've got, uh, they're on the hook for a lot of the safety considerations financially. They've got tremendous data, sometimes over the course of 100 years and at population scale, about what kind of behaviors make for safe driving, what kinds of infrastructure and semiotics make for safe driving. And they really need to be part of this conversation. For Insurance Uncovered, I'm Lauren Anderson. NAMIC's Commercial and Personal Line Seminar is right around the corner. Starting March 23rd in Chicago, underwriters, directors, and officers will meet to learn about and discuss several emerging issues within those segments of the industry. And one topic of conversation on the agenda is the Great Resignation. On today's Unscripted, our Neil Aldrich chats with event speaker and CEO of Born to Lead, Mike Kozelny, about how the insurance industry workforce has changed dramatically since the onset of the pandemic and what insurers can do to recruit and retain employees in a virtual world. Everyone has seen the numbers about the current work environment. Job statistics are changing sometimes month by month. Uh, the pandemic has certainly had an impact on people making choices and how they work and where they work and frankly if they work to some degree uh, and we we see that no no different in the insurance industry and so we're going to explore this phenomenon today uh, with mike koselny mike is the ceo and founder of born to lead he's had 40 more than 40 years experience in the insurance industry mike actually going to be a speaker at our upcoming uh commercial and personal lines event in chicago uh, later on this year. He's going to talk about this topic and other topics as it relates to the workforce. So, Mike, thanks for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me. So, why don't we start right in? We see a lot of stories, the return to work, the what if I work, what if I don't work, how has the pandemic affected work, is it permanent? All those kinds of questions uh, are certainly on everybody's mind. So, let's start with this one. So, how has the pandemic uh, affected the way employees view work in your mind and then you know what's sort of driving the shift that we see uh I, I you know i guess i think about the driving piece of it kind of first in this and that is you know there's so much uncertainty and uh sort of conflicting information that people get uh, i could tell you within our organization we follow the cdc guidelines and there's been some fluctuation in those over time so I think that uncertainty certainly weighs on the uh, on the minds of employees. Add to that the the fear of being together uh, in a global pandemic in an office setting where I'm breathing the same air, I'm in close proximity to other employees. Even though most employers have taken uh, significant precautions to ensure that the space uh, where people are working together. Uh, in an office today is as safe as it could be. Uh, so I, I think that's sort of driving the shift. The other part is, is that one of the amazing things that occurred uh, for many companies is, you know, back in March of 2020, I guess now, right, we're coming up on two years of this, is uh, it, was a, it was a Herculean effort to send everybody home uh, and allow them the opportunity, if in fact their work could be done in a remote setting, uh, to be done from home. Uh, in, in a relatively short period of time, we were able to, at least in our organization, able to uh, make people effective, right? Give them the appropriate equipment so they could get things done. So from the view of the employee, 
in many cases, I think employees are thinking now, well, I could do my job just as effectively from home as I can from an office setting. Uh, I may not have the same sort of interpersonal connections that I would get in an office setting. Uh, You know, they go to lunch or go have a beer after work or, you know, I I talk about the water cooler talk, but, uh, you know, we have a water cooler in our office, but a lot of places don't. But, you know, there's that whole sense of how do I continue to do that? But for the most part, I think employees are pretty comfortable with the fact that they can work from home and they've sort of adjusted their own personal lives to allow that to happen. And and I hear from a lot of folks that say, I save an hour of commute every day, which means I get to spend more time with my family on a daily basis, where in, in the pre-pandemic world, I didn't have that opportunity. Uh, I was in the car. Maybe I'm listening to serious radio or something or a book on tape, but my uh, sort of work-life balance is much better now in this sort of work from home, sort of hybrid environment, whatever you want to call it, that we're in today. And I think that's very appealing to a lot of employees. Yeah, no doubt. We here at NAMIC even, um, we're here in the late January and just brought everybody back in the office uh, just 10 days ago, uh, three days a week. Um, and so far, it's gone well. We chuckle all the time that we send everybody home in March of 2020 for two weeks. Um, and it turned out to be nearly two years, but, uh, <laughs> but, you know, we're, we're going through that transition here too, and, and, and learning, uh, <clears throat> how it's all going to work. There's no doubt, you know, I think that people came to the conclusion that you can get work done, so to speak, remotely. Uh, but then it's, everybody wonders about the trade-offs that you, that you, that you have to deal with there and other things that we're going to explore a little later on in this conversation, sure. actually. Uh, but no doubt, it's an interesting experience for us all to go through. So it, one one aspect that people talk about maybe as potentially a positive of all of this is, and we, we see this in the insurance industry, you know, working around the industry, this industry tends to be a little older in terms of its employee base to begin with. And I've had lots of CEOs tell me, you know, just in 2019, I met with a member company who's in uh, you know, the rural part of the Northeast, and he was facing you know, 80 employees that were going to retire in the next couple of years and wasn't sure how he was going to be able to recruit people um, to that part of the country uh, to fill those kind of jobs. And now, you know, part of this benefit could be, you know, what are we seeing on the recruitment side? We hear a lot of talk about this, that this is a positive that allows companies to recruit talent that maybe isn't in their geographic location. Uh, sort of broadening the talent pool, but I wonder if we're really seeing that work in reality yet, or is it, you know, too sort of too soon to tell how that's going to shape up? You know, I think that's a, uh, a very uh, interesting opportunity for a lot of organizations. Um, so aside from my work with Boyd Lee, the comp- one of the companies I work with very uh, closely right now, we were having a really hard time recruiting didn- during the pandemic. Uh, People didn't want to come to the office. Uh, we were doing virtual uh, interviews. Um, and the fact that we were posting positions that were local, uh, we were seeing the same candidates we saw two or three years ago coming back through with no real changes, unfortunately. Right. And so they weren't really qualified to do the jobs. And so we took a stab and said, well, what if we put remote on these these uh, job postings and see what we got? 
And almost instantaneously, we started to see a level of recruit, new uh, potential underwriters that were very qualified, easily could fill the roles. In fact, we were making, we would interview, do a, a, a three-person interview on teams, and typically we would make the offer the same day. We could really evaluate them that quickly based on their background and where they came from, how they went through the interview process. And in that, in this environment today, that's really, um, it's not an unreasonable expectation for a candidate to expect that because it's sort of striking when, when the iron's hot, right? You want to get people in as quickly as you can and uh, move on. So uh, that that has been a real change. And, and that organization right now, uh, probably 30% of the employees now are permanently remote because of the challenges that we uh, uh, face with that and the fact that we went and started recruiting remotely. So when I think about that relative to the whole industry, I think there's got to be a willingness of uh, employers and carriers to consider hiring remote employees. Uh, Just by once you increase the pool of potential candidates, you have a much greater opportunity to get qualified people to do that job. Uh, And that's really only the first step, in my opinion, uh, going forward is recruiting in the world uh, for remote is certainly an opportunity. uh, And I think it's a very positive one. But the next challenge is getting them on board, having them train properly and then being effective in terms of managing the expectations of what the job is and what they do. So uh, the remote piece, I think, is a real positive thing. And I think uh, the winners and the great resignation or whatever you want to call this new phenomenon we're going through right now, the winners will be the ones that embrace this in a meaningful way uh, and encourage remote activities, particularly when the employees are qualified. Or I had one employee who decided they wanted to move from Florida to Texas. Sure. Normally, we would have let them go. Right. But now we can continue to keep that. And we know that employees are good employees. So yeah. I, I think that remote capabilities. And so if I'm a carrier in New Hampshire and I'm really looking for quality talent, it, you have to create the other opportunities of being part of a culture of an organization. But if you're smart about it, you can get a really high quality potential uh, uh, new associate for your organization if you consider opening the door to that and allowing remote Sure. So that's that's a good segue there into some of the practicalities here. Like we've we've hired people here. I know, you know our listeners have certainly hired people in the pandemic. It's a strange phenomenon for those of us that are more used to a traditional office environment. Uh, we've here at NAMIC have had remote employees for 20 years, both in our Washington D.C. office and people that have always been remote. But there's always been this sort of connection to the Indianapolis headquarters and, you know, it's people are here are here in the building and and the whole, you know, onboarding somebody is an interesting process in all of this. So any 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 uh, practical sort of thoughts on how to do that, what to look for, maybe what not to do in terms of bringing on a new person in a remote setting? Sure. So I think the first and foremost is if you can't onboard people in person, you're probably not going to be able to do it in a remote environment. If you if you struggle to do that with in-person uh, new hires, uh, then you probably need to step back and really look at your onboarding process and your training uh, and the complexity of what you do. Um, I think 
having a really solid program, uh, onboarding program, and I don't mean just signing the documents for the HR department, sure. but you know the whole indoctrination and inclusion into the department uh, that that particular employee is working in is the important thing. I think having a, a dedicated person who manages that is is uh, just as a, probably the most important thing. And that person has to be willing and able to communicate in this sort of form, right, in this sort of Teams environment where it's video, where we're just boxes on a screen, but to do it in an effective manner so that the the, the person feels just as engaged if they were sitting across from them uh, at a conference room table or at their desk. But there is some real benefits to doing this uh, in a hybrid environment or through uh, a Teams environment, and that is, uh, it's it's a phenomenon I always talk about of, uh, you know, sort of swinging around to their side of the desk. So sitting at the computer with them, if that's it's a transactional type position, uh, and watching them work, and then suggesting to them some of the the sort of the tricks of the trade, right? How to maneuver their way around in a more effective way, because so much of the time is spent sort of managing and understanding how to do the work, uh, sort of how to complete the transaction as opposed to the decisioning that often goes into that, whether you're in claims or underwrite or customer service. So having the ability to do that, and one of the, one of the most of these virtual uh, tools like we have today, like Teams in that, is not only can you, uh, you can take over their screen in many cases, uh, employer that I work for, they had the ability where I could flip my computer over to the, to them, uh, to the trainer, and the trainer can facilitate. And that's kind of, that's the same sort of phenomenon you could have while you're in the office. I can grab the mouse when I'm sitting on the same side of the desk with them and show them, well, if you go over here and click, okay, you see how to do that. Uh, that's a real plus. I think that's an important part of this. The other thing that I think is really important, and this kind of goes to that, bringing the culture into the training because that's a part of the whole process of engaging someone and really having them feel part uh, is how do you infuse that? How do you create what I call the over the wall conversations? So, you know, when you're in a cubicle and you're looking at something, it's a claim where you're talking about to a customer, it's an underwriting risk, or if you're an agent, you're trying to understand what's the best way to cover a particular person. It's not uncommon for you to talk over the wall of, of sure. the cubicle, the person next to you. <laughs> Those capabilities are available just as easy as clicking on whatever tool you use, Zoom or Teams or whatever, and get that person on the screen and have that same sort of conversation where you're looking at them eye to eye now and not looking, talking to them through a wall, uh, either the, the video aspect of it or the chat. And I think the, those who are encouraged that activity uh, during the day, I think, uh, are able to solve that over-the-wall conversation challenge, right? And then the other part is is to identify an associate in your organization who would become the buddy, if you will, uh, of that particular new employee. So uh, sort of look for people who have similar backgrounds potentially um, and make it a, a um, very um, – I can't think of the word right now – you want to be deliberate about it. You want to make sure that that person who's the buddy is reaching out to the new employee on a regular basis. So those kind of conversations that would have happened at the break table right. or at lunch or anything happen in those settings where the uh, the new employee can ask the questions that they wouldn't ask their boss. Sure. Right? Something along those lines. That's an important aspect of that, and it can be done just as easily through these tools as it can be um, 
if you're sitting right next to somebody. So it's really it's kind of those those pieces, I think, are the important part. And then, of course, feedback is the most important part of that. Uh, so uh, there's should be milestones in your training program, and at each milestone, and I know I'm preaching to the choir in so many of this because so many do this now, but you really need to be deliberate about more even more deliberate because it's remote of saying, hey, uh, we've reached this point, and you've successfully completed these things, and what feedback do you have on the process? What things would you like us to focus on more? Uh, those are important conversations to have throughout the training program. And then most importantly, I think, is that you need to set specific expectations of people. Once they've gone through that whole program, whether it's two, three months, I found it recently, uh, where we've gotten the person effective and on the desk in two and a half months, it would have normally taken us three or four in person. Don't ask me why. Probably because we're much more focused on it today than we were um we get sort of lackadaisical when we're all in the office, right? Well, they're here and they're working, but uh, because there's such focus, we want to make sure that they that they find their way around the systems and they can um, really understand what's necessary to set specific goals for them to say, this is your productivity standard. This is your quality standard. You, we're measuring you now through your training. Uh, this is an ongoing process. Uh, these are the standards. We understand you're not going to be at the level of uh, a uh, completely trained employee, but we're making progress towards that end. Uh, and then using those tools to help focus back on some of the gaps maybe in the training. So maybe they didn't completely understand the decisioning process or some of the processing or the documentation of file if it's in claims or underwriting, uh, but an opportunity to really share uh, that information back with the trainee and more importantly to all employees um, I always say that if I give you clear expectations, then you control uh, your merit, right? If you're in a merit-based system, uh, if you reach the goals, uh, then you'll get a reasonable increase based on the merit. And if you uh, you are uh, exceeding your goals, uh, then you control it. Um, you make my life easier as the leader of the organization if if you perform well. And if you don't perform well, uh, you'll your increases your salary will be commensurate with the work level but we are here to work with you to get you to that level so that you can um, receive sort of the average increases that people would normally get so having good and solid expectations and then setting that expectation early on in the training program so that once they get into the onto the desk there's no surprises they know exactly what they need to do to be successful uh, and that they have the support of their training people and their supervisor to continue to be successful in their role yeah, it's it's good thoughts. Uh, it's interesting. And one thing I have noticed for the people that were already remote uh, in this process, they seem to be closer. They seem to be more part of you know, before they were always remote and it was easy to kind of, oh, yeah, we got to remember to bring Mark into this thing right. you know, as we were here in the building or whatever. But that that process seems to be easier now. They seem more connected to the organization. But the idea of when you bring new people into this sort of strange environment, I think your point about just being extraordinarily deliberate in how you approach it is really the 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 key to all of this. Yeah, you want to don't you don't want them to feel uh, on an island uh, sitting out there not knowing, right? So it's probably overkill initially. I tell the trainer you need to talk to people at least twice a day, right? So you give them their assignments. There's some 
self-study work they do. There's some testing and then there's some file review work they do initially, but you need to be in contact with them at least twice a day. And then maybe after that, it's as they continue to progress, maybe it's once a day. And then uh, uh, the, the supervisor needs to be involved initially on a, on a more regular basis, maybe three times a week. They need to have conversations all the time. Uh, they need to also include them in team meetings so that they can have the opportunity to see the faces of the people that they're working with that aren't uh, maybe had been in the office and now working remote or they're remote employees now. Uh, so they can start to build some relationships uh, with those folks as well in this virtual world as opposed to in the face-to-face world. And I think the bigger piece of this, and this is one thing I've talked to a lot of senior managers about, is you need to bring those remote people into the office so they can be in the setting with the rest of the team, maybe four times a year, right. where maybe have a you know a claims conference or an underwriting conference, customer service conference, where the team's all together. You do some team building things so you can learn more about, you know, you know my I got a new dog or my right. my daughter had a baby. I mean, those sort of conversations that are going to happen when you're face to face, have a meal together. Those are things down the road, I think, as we come, become more comfortable with the pandemic. But I think that's an important part of bringing remote employees together. Now, years ago, I led a team of salespeople uh, in a 16-state region, uh, and there were at least two in every state. And we did that every quarter. We brought everybody together, and it was for a whole week. And we they had the opportunity to reach out to other departments. Uh, we spent lots of time together. We did a lot of team-building things. And they looked forward to those that week in the office where they get to spend time with their peers. But the conversations continued after that. So I think that's the part of this that I think needs to – you sort of have to, again, be deliberate about this and say, this is what we're going to do. And our expectation going forward is you continue to reach out to your team members when you need to. Well, listen, Mike, we appreciate your thoughts on all of sure. this. Obviously, this is a topic that everybody is – you know keen to learn more about. I know you're going to talk about some of this stuff at our upcoming commercial and personal lines event, and uh, certainly member company execs are talking about it all the time, and everybody, you know, there's no playbook for this that we've been through, so. No, we're kind of making it up as we go. Well, listen, again, thanks, Mike, for joining us. We look forward to Absolutely. It was my pleasure. Yeah, and uh, this topic will be with us for some time, so. It will. Thanks again. Yeah, we're still trying to figure it out. And that's a wrap for this episode of Insurance Uncovered. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. And don't forget to check back with us on February 23rd, when we'll bring you more insurance news, including an interview with Indiana Insurance Commissioner Amy Beard. In the meantime, if there's a topic or issue you'd like us to uncover, don't hesitate to let us know. You can always send us an email at uncovered at Until next time, I'm Kathy Imus. Have a wonderful day.